It's the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast with your host, Jill Riley. On this podcast, Jill explores what faith can look like after trauma. Hi, I'm Jill Riley. I am an author and a minister. I am also a trauma survivor and live with complex PTSD, depression, anxiety, and a dissociative disorder. My prayer is that post-traumatic faith will bring you hope and joy in your own journey. Welcome to Post-Traumatic Faith. Today, I'm excited to have Julie Sanford here with us. Welcome, Julie. Hello. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me today. Awesome to have you. Julie is a wife and a mom of three. How old are your kids? So this is something that's a little bit of the interesting part. So my oldest daughter is 30. And then I have a, or sorry, 31. She's turned 31. And then I have a 24-year-old daughter. And then I have a nine-year-old son. So Wow. You started over. There. I did. I started totally over. <laughs> <laughs> okay. She's a mom of three who found herself in a situation she never wanted to be in as the wife of an alcoholic. After navigating that incredibly difficult road for several years and walking with her husband all the way through the darkness of addiction and into sobriety, God called her to use every bit of it for good. Julie now helps other wives of alcoholics navigate their husband's addictions without losing themselves in the process and shows them how to restore their often troubled relationship with God. So thank you for being vulnerable and sharing today and being willing to share your story and your family's story. I really appreciate it. Of course, I'm privileged to be here. So tell me a little bit about your faith background growing up. Were you raised in a in a faith-based home? I was. Um, I grew up in Southern Baptist Church, which I don't really consider myself affiliated with that particular um, denomination anymore, but I did mm-hmm. grow up in church. My parents sung in the choir. You know, we were there every morning or every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening, Wednesdays for choir practice. You know, I, I spent a lot of time at church when I was young. So, yes. And I did um, become a Christian when I was little, like about eight years old. So, yeah, I, I definitely grew up in the church and faith was a big part of my house. Yeah. How about, how about in raising your kids? Did you raise them in um, Southern Baptist tradition or? No, I've always taken them to non-denominational. Now I kind of just identify with that a little bit more. And um, there's just, there's a lot of really cool churches in our area that are bigger churches that are non-denominational that have some, some great programs for kids for my son. So that's, that's what we've done. And what area of the world are you in? I'm in just outside of Austin, Texas, in Round okay. Rock, which is a suburb north of Austin. Okay, great. So you've been married for 13 years now? It'll be 13 years this year, uh-huh, in October, so just a couple more Congratulations. Months. Thank you. I always, I thought when I hit the 10 year mark, I'm like, have we really been married that long? And now we're heading towards 30 and it's just crazy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's funny. It's like some years crawl by some years fly by. Right. 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 So speaking of years that kind of crawl by, can you tell me when did alcoholism enter your relationship? Like when did it become, become a thing? So we had both um, just kind of drank socially throughout our relationship, but things kind of took a turn for the worse after my husband lost his dad. Uh, he really started to struggle after that. And that's kind of when I started seeing, seeing some signs of, okay, this isn't just like socially recreational drinking anymore. Like it's starting to affect our lives. So what how, what kind that. of signs were you seeing? 
Um, he just drinking a lot more than he did before, you know, not really being able to, to flip that off switch. Um, it did eventually progress into where it was affecting like his ability to work and, you know, parent sometimes and things like that. So it, it was definitely a progression. It, it got worse, but my first sign was definitely, you know, okay, something's wrong. I remember actually going online and the first, the first things that I ever Googled about uh, alcoholism and addiction was how do I know if my husband's drinking too much? Because I was thinking, am I just like making this up? You know, is this really a lot? Is this like out of, out of the norm for what most people do? So I kind of went through a period there where I wasn't really sure. And then, you know, a few months later, it was like, there was no doubt that there was a big problem. Yeah. Do you feel like, uh, with addiction, does it, is it kind of like the frog in the kettle The water just heats up and you don't know that it's getting too hot until all of a sudden you're in trouble? Or is there just like this glaring moment where you're like, ding, 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 there's a problem. It's a progression. At least it was in our situation for sure. Um, you know, I would see at first it was just, like I said, I was kind of like, is this too much? Like this seems a little excessive to me. And then when it started, we started having instances where it was affecting specific things. Then I thought, okay, now I know this isn't normal. And then those got more frequent, more and more frequent as Mm -hmm. time went on. So at that point, you know, there was, there was no denying there was an issue. So it was affecting his ability to work. Does that mean that he was drinking at work or, or not able to get to work? Um, he, he was not able to get to work. So, uh, it basically ended up to where he was drinking earlier and earlier in the day, um, as like a coping mechanism basically. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about some stuff that he had going on under the surface as well, but, um, uh, he just was really in a spot where he felt like he couldn't function unless he was able to drink and, you know, he couldn't, he didn't really have that off switch, like I said. So, you know, as soon as it started, it just kind of kept going. Mm-hmm. And what was his, what was his drug of choice? Was it hard liquor or was it, was it beer or what was he drinking? Um, I think at first he was drinking more like the little airplane bottles of vodka. And mm-hmm. then I know it went to, um, at the end there, it was wine, like those, the little plastic, like single serving bottles you can get. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to find a lot of those around. So yeah, was, now, was now good. they make them in like, in like sippy juice boxes. I know I've seen that. <laughs> I'm really yeah. glad that those weren't around back then because that probably would have been even worse. Yeah, it's crazy. So you mentioned that there were some other things underlying um, the drinking. And there was some mental illness stuff going on, right? There was. And we didn't know. It, it's so funny that, you know, they, they say hindsight's 2020 is absolutely the case with us because we didn't know that that was even a factor. Um, all that I knew and all that he knew was he kept telling me over and over again, something else is wrong. You know, yes, I know that I have a problem with alcohol, but that is happening because it's, I'm medicating something else that's going on. Like something's not right. And he said, I, you know, I have to use this to feel some semblance of normal. And he was going through these phases. He's a, he's an artist and a photographer. And he was going through these phases where he would seem okay. And he would, you know, create, create, create a bunch of, a bunch of art. And then he would just like bottom out and just not be able to work, not be able Mm. to do really anything. He would just sleep and just could not function for like a really long time. And then he would kind of, what I thought was snap out of it and, you know, be creative again. And he was going through these cycles and we didn't realize at the time that that was bipolar disorder. Mm. And so, um, we realized when we, when he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, he, he ended up going to a dual diagnosis treatment center. And that's where they told him that that's what was going on. And they said that he'd probably been dealing with that for 30 years. 
And so okay. it had just been one of those things where it just got, you know, more pronounced or more obvious when alcohol came into the picture. But I just remember having such relief when he was diagnosed because it was like, that's the something, you know, that's, that's the thing that he's always felt that there's something else going on. Like the alcohol is just the medication for trying to fix the underlying issue. So was he having, when he was in his creative modes, was it like the manic phases or was, did he just have super high highs and super low lows? It was more like the super high highs and and the lows. He he has bipolar too. And so it wasn't quite as, as drastic, um, which is probably how we kind of missed it. Like I, I really didn't, I just thought that he was having times when he was feeling a little bit better and more himself. And then times where he was just having a really hard time dealing with things. And I didn't realize that that was like a, a cycle that he was going through. But as time went on, the the good periods got much shorter and then the the depressive episodes or depressive periods got a lot longer. And, okay. you know, that that's kind of and that's kind of, you know, where the alcoholism started to get worse, too, because as the depressive episodes got longer, of course, you know, putting alcohol in the mix doesn't help matters. Right. So, right. Alcohol and bipolar do, are not friends. No, not at all. turns out. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm curious. I was in a dual diagnosis uh, treatment facility, um, not for addiction, but for mental illness. Um, I'm curious as the spouse waiting for um, your, your spouse to come out of treatment and all of that, what is that waiting period like? It was very surreal. So part of me felt really happy and grateful and relieved. And part of me felt very nervous because you, you hear all the time about, you know, relapse and uh, treatment not being successful. And I just remember still having that feeling like the other shoe is going to drop, like what's going to happen when he gets home and are we just going to go exactly back to how we were? And there was a lot of fear around that at the time, because I didn't really know what to expect or if it was going to, you know, take, so to speak. Um, so it was, it was definitely a very mixed bag of emotions during that time. Yeah. And how long was he in, in treatment? It was a total of about, I think he was at one facility for two or three weeks and then another one for four to six weeks. So it was maybe like 45 days ish somewhere in there. So did he do like an IOP after, after treatment, like a Mm -hmm. outpatient he did. So he was in, he was in one facility that was um, largely medical detox. Um, and then he went to another facility where they were just really were concentrating on the actual treatment part of it um, with addiction. And then they also, uh, after that, they've had him go to the outpatient too. So. Okay. Was he um, after, after treatment, was he relieved or was there um was it anxiousness about trying to remain sober? What's the emotion coming out of treatment? Once he got out, I think he, he felt, I'm sure he had some nervousness like I did, but I think he felt really empowered because first of all, he had an actual diagnosis of, you know, that thing that he never really knew. So I right. think that was just such a load off, you know? And then the other part of it is that they really, they were really good there about also explaining to them what was going on with their bodies and even change, you know, brain changes and things like that, uh, that a lot of, a lot of other, you know, uh, avenues that he had pursued before when trying to quit didn't really address that. So whereas, you know, you hear a lot of like an AA and stuff like that, it's a lot more about, you know, the faith base, which is a really important component. Um, 
and, you know, changing your behaviors with that, with that knowledge of knowing that there's actually some fundamental stuff happening to me physically and chemically. I think that he really just felt a lot more hope being armed with that knowledge coming out of there. Right. The knowledge is super, is super key knowing what is going on inside. And, and I can see how validating that would be if he, if he sensed that something else was going on and then someone saying, yeah, you're right. That would be, that would be huge. Yeah. Yeah. And we really were, we're just, you know, so surprised as much as we were relieved because you would think that, especially having had that for so many years that, you know, it would have been obvious, but it, it truly wasn't, you know, it just it never even dawned on us until things got really bad. Yeah. So how long in total was he drinking during your marriage? Um, well, always, I mean, you know, just like socially recreationally, but it didn't really get bad until let's see, he's been sober for, he just passed his four year sobriety. Um, and it was like two so years. So it was about eight or nine years, that, huh? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Okay. You know, it, it just really, when he's like, when he lost his dad is just really when it started going downhill between like, you know, yeah, my husband drinks too. Well, my husband drinks too much. Yeah. Yeah. So did they do like a family week or education or anything for you to go down and, or go wherever and, and find out more information? They did. And that was really a pivotal time for me. We did have a family week where we went and the facility was, I think about four hours from our house. So it was definitely a jaunt. So I went there and stayed there for the course of a week. And they brought us into a lot of the talks and presentations that they had been having with them that, you know, where they were talking about the, the, the different things I mentioned about the physical aspects of it and things like that, along with, you know, teaching us about boundaries and communication and, you know, what, what do you do if there is a relapse and things like that. And, so I just really came away from there. I mean, I just feel like I just felt like the veil was just taken from in front of my eyes because I didn't realize like a lot of the things that I was doing that were really problematic mm. um, and definitely felt like I came away from there with a lot of tools that I could use going forward too, for sure. What kinds of things do you feel like were problematic in the way that you were handling the situation? I was trying to fix it. Like I felt like I needed to fix what he was doing and fix the situation. And, um, you know, I will admit that I'm a control freak by nature. So that (laughs) that definitely did not work in my favor, but I really just felt like, um, I have to figure this out. Like I have to figure out what's, what's going to help him and what's going to fix him and what I can do to, um, you know, to move him towards recovery. And I just, I know now that I did everything wrong, you know, between threatening and pleading and begging and crying and all of those things. Like it just, it, I really need to be staying in my own lane, which at the time mm-hmm. I didn't even feel like that was possible, honestly. And so coming away from family week, especially where they taught us a lot of that stuff just was was really a relief to me, first of all, because it was the first time that I realized that it wasn't my fix. And then now I felt like I was empowered to be able to move forward in an appropriate way instead of, you know, trying to manage it all myself. Yeah. I know in, in treatment, they used to tell us all the time to keep your own side of the street clean. And it's like, yeah, but there's a big mess over there. I I can't stop looking at the mess. You know, it, it's interesting that um, that you say, you know, you wanted to fix and and control the situation a little bit more. You know, I've done um, a fair my fair share of Al-Anon meetings, and that is a reoccurring theme, right? Mm-hmm. That when you're married to addiction or when that when you have an addictive person in your life, that so many of us just want to want to 
take over and and just fix the problem and it's not within our within our wheelhouse to do that right it's not it's it's impossible to do that and you know it's funny and I, i'm sure it's because i've learned so much since then but looking back now i just think to myself what were you doing like what did you how did you possibly think that any of that was going to help you know and but but when you're in it you feel so so desperate and just you know, you're just trying everything. Like you're not really mm-hmm. thinking of it clearly because you don't have that outside view. Like you're, you're in it and you're deep in the trenches and you're just grasping at straws and trying anything and everything that you can think of. And of course, none of it will work because you didn't cause it. You didn't, you can't control it and you can't cure it. Like that's, that's totally their part of the equation. My part of the equation is to worry about, like you said, my side of the street. Yeah. Yeah. So how did the alcoholism affect your kids and your family life? I had at the time, my son was, was here obviously, cause he was little and I had one daughter still living at home, but even my daughter who had moved out was definitely affected because, you know, there were a couple of suicide attempts that occurred throughout this process. And so, you know, the kids knew that that had happened. Um, he also disappeared the first time that he tried to take his life. He was gone for over 24 hours and that was completely unlike him. Oh, he was terrifying. He wasn't a, it was, it was just, it's the worst thing I've ever been through. And he wasn't a bar guy ever. Like he never, he used to work in a bar, but he was never a guy that would go to the bar to drink. He always, you know, drink at home. Um, he's a gamer. So his free time is always spent in front of video games. Like he never like, was a go out with your friends kind of guy. So when he didn't come home that night, I knew that something was really, really wrong because he had never done that before. And I knew that there was just, you know, a problem. So fortunately the police took it seriously and we were able to locate him. But, um, you know, my kids were here for that and they, they saw a lot of that. Um, my, my son, who was really tiny at the time, he does remember that mommy and daddy used to fight a lot, but he was only between three and five years old, I think when that happened. And so, um, he does know that his dad can't drink. Uh, we, we have basically explained it to him in the way that daddy's allergic to drinking because, um, you know, it changes who he is and it's not good for his body and his brain. Um, so he can kind of like understand it on his, his mm-hmm. kid level. Um, so he knows, and he knows what happened. I don't think that he remembers a lot of, you know, the really terrible parts. He doesn't know, um, right. and talk to him about like the, the, the suicide attempts and things like that. But, um, you know, they, they were definitely affected. I mean, they were here in the house and if I could go back and do things differently, I definitely would have had some boundaries around that because they saw things that they didn't need to see. And it yeah. was definitely a, a, a very difficult place to be for a while. Yeah. So how many times did he attempt to take his life? Two times, um, about a year apart. Okay. Just by drinking too much? Um, the first time, which was when he disappeared, he, yes, he drank too much. Um, he also took some pills, some over-the-counter pills, and he had tried to, I still don't know, like, the full story. Um, it wasn't something that I wanted to, like, ask him to relive after he got out of the hospital. But uh, from what the cops told me, they said that he had tried to set a fire in his car to have, like, either a uh, carbon monoxide it looked like because he was trying to like control the flow of the smoke or something like that i'm not sure of the details mm. but um and then the second time we found him actually in a culvert uh surrounded by pills and uh lots and lots of bottles of alcohol so so what's your emotion after um your spouse tries to take their own life it was a mix of 
fear. I remember just being so afraid to even go to the store for a while. Um, and just such sadness because the way that he explained it to us is that he knew what he was putting us through, but because, and we realized after the the fact, when he was diagnosed with the bipolar, he knew that something was wrong, but he didn't know what that was. And he didn't know how to fix it. He just knew that it was so uncomfortable in his head that the only way that he could function was to drink. And now, you know, I'm telling him and everybody's telling him like, you need to stop drinking. And he knew how hard it was for us. And he knew how hard it was for him. And he just lived every single day of his life in that place of just agony and guilt and shame. And so it just made me, it made me look at him completely differently in his situation differently. And I really realized at that point that this wasn't a choice. It wasn't like, you know, mm-hmm. I used to tell him, you just need to stop drinking. Like, why are you choosing to drink over your family? Why are you choosing alcohol over our marriage? And that was not what was, ha- that was not at all what was happening. Right. He was just trying to make it through life. And right. when he felt like it was either, you know, losing us or basically having to go through life just in this living hell that he was experiencing, he just didn't want to be here anymore. And so, Knowing that after the fact just really gave me a whole completely different outlook on what he had been dealing with. And it was right. That's really clarifying because you feel, I mean, I imagine it would feel so personal um, yes. and about, about you, you know, and about the family. Yeah. yeah it was yeah. really hard. So what, during those times, during the toughest, toughest times, what were your conversations with God like? Um. I think towards the beginning, I, because I did have, you know, I I did have my faith. I think that uh, it was just really me trying to ask for help and guidance Um, when it kept going on and on, because it was over two years from beginning to end where it really started getting bad. And when he finally got treatment, you know, as, as the months went on, I just started feeling abandoned. God. Mm. And I was angry and I didn't understand. And, you know, I, I kept thinking, you know, I've lived my life in this way, trying to be a good daughter to you, Lord. And, you know, why when the chips are down here and my whole family is just being pulled under and just going through this dark, dark place, you know, where are you? Like, why aren't you showing up? And so after a while, I just got, I really just got tired of waiting. And I even questioned sometimes if he was real. Because mm-hmm. I'm thinking there's no way that a loving God that, you know, I, I thought that I had a relationship with would be continuing to put me through this and just keeping me in this place. And so it, I definitely, and I know a lot of wives alcoholics go through this, you know, we, we just feel abandoned by God and we just don't understand like why in the world have you brought me here and what, what good can possibly come of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are your conversations with God like now? Has that has that changed, or do you feel still um, kind of distant with with your faith? I basically everything in our life has been completely restored. Our marriage has been restored. My husband's health has been restored. My relationship with the Lord has been restored because now I look back, and even though it was like such a hard thing to go through. I see now that I see now the greater purpose, like me mm-hmm. sitting here with you right now and talking to other women who are potentially in this situation. I was looking for me when I was in that spot. I was looking for me and mm-hmm. I, I needed somebody to 
that could relate to me. And I needed somebody to tell me that I wasn't alone. I needed somebody who had gone through this. And I felt like I was the only one. And I felt like, you know, I, there was nobody else out there that was having to go through this except for, you know, the people that you see on TV, which there's such a negative stigma around alcoholism. People think that it only happens to certain, you know, classes of society. And that's absolutely not true. I mean, we're, we're a normal Christian family and it just, we just had this struggle. And I think there's a lot of me's out there and they're not raising their hand and asking for help because they're ashamed. And I just, I, I needed, I needed me. And so now to see how God has like turned that mess into my message. And now I'm the me to those other people who are yeah. out there. It's just, it's crazy to like, to see that progression. And I never in a million years would have thought that I ever would have, you know, been a spokesperson for something like this. Like all those times that I was like sitting on the floor of my closet, just trying to get enough strength to like go downstairs and try to be a normal mother to my kids if you would have told me like fast forward a few years, you know, you're going to be on a podcast talking about how you guys came through this and things are better than ever. I would have never believed you because it, yeah. it, it felt so dark and hopeless right then. And so isolating. Yes, absolutely. So you started married to addiction and tell me what you do with that, um, that program, that assistance. Tell me about it. So I, um, I call myself a recovery mentor because, uh, I just basically like to, like I said, I, I feel like God has tasked me with going and finding these, I call them my secret sisters because they're all like in, in secret places, not telling their friends a lot of times, not telling their families, you know, how bad it is or what they're going through and they just feel hopeless and in a super dark place. And so I am trying to seek them out and bring them into my world of married to addiction, where I just give them hope and give them tools and tell them, you know, all the things that I wish I would have done differently and all the things that I learned going through this. And um, I have a course right now that I offer for that, but I'm also working on a membership that I'm going to be launching in the next little while, because I really feel like that's going to be an important part of having kind of like that, um, community aspect to where mm-hmm. they know that they aren't alone and that there are a lot of us out there. And so, uh, you know, through the membership and the course, I just kind of help them feel like it's not the end of the world. You know, you're going to make it and here's some ways to make it easier while you're in the middle of it. And how are you finding these women or how are they finding you? Um, I have an audience on Facebook and Instagram. I have, uh, you know, like I've reached out for podcast opportunities like this one. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to spread the message. Here. Oh, thank you. Um, but just, you know, just different ways. Uh, I was a part of a, a marriage conference last month, I believe. Oh, wow. That was the beginning of this month. Um, and so, you know, I found it's like this, this year has been so crazy. Um, so I did, you know, find some people through there. So just kind of trying to seek them out as much as possible. I would love eventually to be able to get into some churches and things like that to, um, you know, to kind of just further, further this mission, but I just, I want to find as many of them as there are out there because there are a bunch there in every single audience. Yeah. So tell me about shame. What is the shame that a spouse feels about their spouse's addiction? Is it about, I could have, I should have fixed them. I should have known what, what is that shame? That is part of it. Um, 
how did I let it, how did I let it get to this, to this point? And that goes back to, you know, the fact that you can't fix it. Like it doesn't have anything to do really with what you did or did not do, but that's how you feel. Um, there's also, you know, one of the biggest things for me is that my husband is a great person. He's, he's a super loving, devoted dad. He's a great husband. I mean, our relationship before this and now since was amazing, even in treatment, you know, people, when we were there in family week, they were saying to us, you know, oh my gosh, you guys have the most amazing relationship, except for this particular, you know, the addiction issue. And, and so I didn't want people to think my husband was a bad person. And there's Mm. such a stigma around alcohol that people just automatically think, oh, well, he's a loser, you know, because he can't control his drinking, or apparently he doesn't love you that much, or he would just stop drinking. And there's just like so many, and I had friends say that to me, you know, like, why out loud? Yeah. Like, why is, why won't he just stop when you've told him that that's important to you? Like, you know, that's, that's not being a good husband, basically. Wow. Just because they have such limited understanding of how deep it runs, you know? And so there's just a lot of that. Like, I didn't, I didn't even tell my parents how bad it was because I didn't want them to think bad of him because people don't, people don't automatically think about somebody who's an alcoholic and think, man, that must be really hard for them. You know Mm -hmm. what? That must be a super difficult way to live. They just think, wow, what a loser. Why doesn't he just stop drinking? You know, right. there's, there's just such a stigma around it. And so it's just shame around all of that. You know, it's, it's just like multi-layered, you know, and the shame of like having my children be exposed to this and just like, there's just so many different things that you have to go through when you're in the middle hmm. of it. Interesting. You know, something um, kind of related here, something I noticed after um, getting out of a treatment facility is how much of our culture is immersed in um, drinking and alcohol and, you know, all of that. Like I was in a home decor store and everything was, you know, wine today and, you know, all of, I mean, just decorations and everywhere you go. And I was just not aware of how many triggers there are out there for people who are struggling with addiction. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's really, you know, that's how society says that we have fun, that we're supposed to have fun. And so, and there's another part of it too, you know, for the alcoholics, and I know my husband has talked to me about this too, you know, they, they try to, they don't try to make you feel like, but they make you feel like you're the only one that's not drinking. You know, everybody yeah. drinks, everybody, you know, has happy hour. Everybody has Miller time. Everybody, everybody does it. You right. Know, you're weird if you don't. And so there's that whole aspect of it too, where, yeah, you know, the, the perception is everyone, you know, ties one on on the weekends. And if you're not doing that, you're the, you're the strange one, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. So what is the most important piece of information you feel like you can give um, to support people of an addict? The biggest part is that don't, don't think that God's abandoned you. I know that it feels that way. I know it feels like you're never going to get out of it, but he is there with you regardless of how it feels. And even though at times when you're, you might be in the middle of anger towards God, even though it feels like the last thing you want to do is try to lean into him and pursue that relationship when you feel abandoned. I think a lot of times he's just waiting for us to, to take our hands off the wheel and, and call mm. on him, you know? And so it's kind of the opposite of what our instinct is. It's like, well, God's not showing up. So I guess this is all my responsibility. You know, I'm the one who has to clean this up where, you know, God's probably thinking, well, I'm just waiting for you to get out of my way. 
Right. Just surrender and I can, Mm -hmm. I can move. Yeah, absolutely. And it really was when I felt like I came to the absolute end of myself, like I didn't know what else to try, what else to do. I was, you know, I was just completely tapped out. There was nothing, I had no other ideas. There was nothing, nothing that had worked and nothing that I felt like was going to work. And that's really when I came to the end of myself and just basically told God, like, you got to show up. Like, I don't, we're, we're, you know, either he's going to die or we're going to get divorced or both. Like you got to show up. And it was, it was kind of in that moment where I felt, feel like it transitioned. And it was shortly after that where my husband, you know, agreed to go to treatment. And then, like I said, four years later, here we are all restored and, and with this message to share. So that's great. What do you um, want people to know most about your personal journey? That God can, turn things around in a way that you would never believe. Like yeah. I said, I, I just never would have thought that. I mean, I, I would have just been happy for us to make it through in one mm-hmm. piece. You know, I, I would have just been happy for us to still be married and my husband to be sober, but to see this beautiful like ministry growing out of this and having women write to me and say, you know, you're giving me hope. And this is the first time I've seen light at the end of the tunnel. And all of those things. It's just like, man, I never, I just never would have, I never would have imagined. And, you know, that's not to say that everybody who goes through this is going to end up speaking about it on a podcast, but you know, you, you will have a message and you will have a testimony Mm -hmm. and, and he is there and he will bring you through. And I don't know what that will end up looking like for each individual person, but good will come at the end of it. Mm -hmm. Thank you about that. How do people get in touch with you if they want to want to know more or need support? So I am pretty much married to addiction everywhere. Uh, married to addiction.com uh, same on Facebook, Instagram. I just started a YouTube channel and I also do have a podcast uh, by the same name. So the married to addiction podcast as well. Great. How far are you into podcasting now? I just recorded my 10th episode. So congratulations. That's great. Very very exciting. Thank you. I had one before, so I had, I had dabbled in it a little bit before, but it's really exciting to be doing this now. And and it's, it's really interesting to see how this is growing a lot more quickly than my last podcast. And I just feel like God is just multiplying my efforts so much more quickly because I know now that this is where he wants me. That's great. Well, Julie, thank you so much for sharing your family's story and for sharing of your your personal emotions through this journey. And um, I just really admire the work that you're doing. I'm grateful that you were willing to share it with us today. Thank you so much. I just really, really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the Post Traumatic Faith Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts today. You can follow Jill on social media on Facebook and Instagram jillreilly.author and Twitter jillreillyauthor To contact Jill, email jill at jillreilly.org